0: Hello and welcome to Rooted and Unwithered. I'm Cole Newton. And the following is a sermon that I originally preached April 2nd of 2023. Um, and I am going to play it here. I'm going to share it here because um, it is a sermon that is based on the text of 2 Timothy 3, 5, uh, which is the text from which I got the uh, the title for. My teaching series that I've been sharing over the last couple of weeks from 2021 um, over the Secular Creed, which I've called an appearance of godliness, and that text um, from Second Timothy three five, of course, reads: "Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people." And so, um, so a little more than two years later, um, I had uh, a Sunday where I was able to do a standalone sermon, and I wanted to. Um, revisit that topic, and so um, so s- some of it is. You'll notice that some of it has a a, a bit of the same qualities to it. Um, but I'm trying to to look at it from another lens and come back to that same topic. And so I thought that it would be worth sharing after having reshared um, the 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 original teaching series. And so hopefully you enjoy this sermon uh, titled "An Appearance of Godliness, But Denying." Its power. You are listening to audio from Western Meadows Baptist Church. Here at WMBC, we are disciples of Jesus who make disciples through the teaching of Scripture, prayer, and living together in community. If you would like to listen to more, go to our Apple Podcasts or to our website WMBC Please do not edit, copy, or sell this material without prior permission of WMBC. Thank you for listening. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Second. Timothy chapter 3, and we are going to be in verse 5 this morning, so just just one verse, uh, but we will read verses 1 through 9, so that way we kind of get the whole context. So if you have uh, one of our sermon cards, um, then you... May notice that it says that after the book of hebrews uh, after the the book of Exodus, the plan is to go to the book of Hebrews, um, and I had it scheduled that uh, that we're supposed to begin the book of Hebrews next week next Sunday, well, as we noted, I left out one Sunday in that plan, uh, I think it was uh February twelfth right, and so uh, that gave us an extra Sunday, right? Um, and so, and so, the, we're going to we're going to hold to that plan. Uh, so next week we will begin um, our new series through the book of Hebrews, and uh, that'll be our home for the rest of the year. All right. Uh, so we'll be in the book of Hebrews the whole rest of the year. But since we have an extra Sunday. Um, And since we have finished the book of Exodus for this year, um, again, the plan is to come back and pick up where we left off at the beginning of next year with Exodus chapter 20. Um, I thought that I would do a standalone sermon, right? Since I've done, I think, more of those this year than... Probably the previous years of my ministry here as pastor combined and uh and so, in thinking about a standalone sermon that I could do this Sunday, I thought back to a a teaching series that I did at the beginning of twenty twenty one that I called an appearance of godliness dissecting the secular creed, and so uh, that's that 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 teaching series if um, Many of you probably followed along with it. Some of you um, haven't. It was uh, what I called the secular creed. Was this uh, house sign that is pretty common, not so much here in in conservative small-town America, like Durant, right, uh, but but certainly in, in, in larger, more more liberal cities. Um, there's a, a really common house sign, which you can see the text of at the corner of uh, the slide that Tiff put together for that series, and it says, in this house, we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything, and the reason that I called that a Creed is because, just as we declared the Apostles' Creed, which comes from the Latin word uh, where we where we get the word believe from, right? A creed is a belief statement. Well, this sign begins with "We believe," right? That is that is a creed, just as we confessed, "I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth." Anybody who puts this sign in their backyard is saying that this is the creed that governs their life. This is their ethical dis- uh, statement of faith, right? And so in that teaching, I walked through each of those, uh, those points, right? Those doctrines is really what they are, all of those statements. And I talked about what can we affirm about those? What can we affirm about the statement, Black Lives Matter? And then what must we deny, about the statement "Black Lives Matter," right? So, um, and but the whole text that kind of undergirded all of that study was our text this morning that we're going to center on, which is Second Timothy chapter three verse five. Because what I see in the secular in, the, in secularism today, and what I see in all of these statements of Black Lives Matter, and no human is illegal, and love is love, and kindness is everything, is I see that it is an outworking today of what Paul already warned Timothy about and warned us in his letter to Timothy where he said having an appearance of godliness but denying its power and we'll see the context for that in just a second when we read it right but I think that that is what secularism is today it is an appearance of godliness, All of those things look like they should be good things to say, right? But upon close inspection of them, they start to unravel. They start to fall apart because they're not rooted in God. And when you have a godliness that's not rooted in God, you don't have anything, right? <laughs> and so what we're going to do today is, in, is instead of going through that creed, you can... You can find all of those. If you want to link to those teachings, I can give those to you. But instead, we're going to talk about that whole worldview. We're going to talk about secularism itself through the lens of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, this verse that says, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people, right? So we're going to focus on that book, on that verse, and we're going to, that verse doesn't apply exclusively to secularism, right? In the context, Paul was probably thinking of people that were more kind of like monkish types, that were practicing a sort of asceticism, right? They were, they were physically punishing their bodies, thinking that their godly behavior was through their extreme fastings, right? And through all of their, and through all of their great disciplining of their bodies. But... I think that we can make a present-day application to the, the de facto religion of our day, which is secularism, which we'll talk about what that is in just a second. So we're going to focus on this verse 5. In our study, we'll have two parts. Um, so the first part, we'll take the first part of the verse, and we will talk about what secularism is, why does it have an appearance of godliness, but why does it ultimately deny Its power, why does it deny God, and what are the consequences of that? And then the second part, we're going to talk about, so what do we do about that, right? And we're going to root that in what Paul says at the end of verse 5, where he gives the single command in all of the verses that we're going to read this morning, which is, avoid such people, right? And so the whole second half, so think of the first half of this sermon as kind of the diagnosis of where our culture is, and the second part is going to be kind of the proposed process, treatment that we find in scripture. And so let's read our text. We'll pray to the Lord to be gracious to us this morning, and then we'll dive in. But let's read it all in its context, right? So this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through verse 9. So Paul says this to his disciple Timothy. He says, but understand this, that in these last days, there will come times of difficulty. As we'll see next week as we begin the book of Hebrews, when the New Testament talks about last days, it's talking about now, right? The last days began in the times of the apostles, and we've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years of history, right? So, talking about here, verse 2, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does this sound like anything today? Verse 5, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, and boy, if this doesn't describe us today, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Lord, as we sit under your word this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you are speaking to us. And Father, as we come under your law, would you open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things therein. Father, may your scriptures be more desirous to us than gold and even much fine gold. And may they be sweeter on our tongues than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Father, we cannot live by bread alone, but instead we must be sustained by every word that comes from your mouth. And so this morning, give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can only be satisfied in your son, Jesus Christ, and through your holy scriptures. Sanctify us in the truth. Oh God, your word is truth. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So again, so like I said, this verse 5, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, speaking of these people that will come in the last days, right? Coming at the end of this list of all of these sins and vices, right? And Paul is clearly in placing that at the end, attending to call attention to this, right, because everything else kind of comes from this having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, right, can have multiple applications, has had multiple applications throughout history, but today we're going to focus on a specific application of what we're dealing with today, which is secularism, right? And secularism is, as I said, the default religion of our of, of at least the Western world today. And so that brings us to the question well, what is secularism right? That may be the the, the million dollar question for this morning. Well secularism comes from, And secularism and our word secular comes from one of the Latin's two words for world, right? So Latin had two words for world. One of them was mundum, and the other was saculum. And so mundum was the Latin word for the world in space, right? So the geographical world as we know it. But saculum was their word for world in time, right? And so very often saculum was used in the same way that we would use the word a lifetime today, right? So so a saculum was meant to be a one human lifetime, right? So it was it was the the the, the present world time temporally that we are living in now, right? And so that's where we get our word secular from this present moment is what we mean by that. So what happens when you add that ism to the end of secular? Well you create a worldview. You create a whole lens through which you are seeing everything and so By adding that ism to the end of it, what you're saying is you're saying you have a worldview that is based upon this present moment in time or this lifetime, right? So in a nutshell, secularism is a worldview that is devoid of eternity or at least doesn't care about it, right? It is a worldview that is totally and 100% transfixed upon our present moment, our present lifetime, right? Right? And as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Indeed, all throughout Ecclesiastes, what we find is we essentially find secularism being described as the preacher repeatedly says, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. Because that's exactly what secularism is. Secularism is looking at a materialist view of the world, everything that is under the sun, not taking the eternity into consideration, right? And so that's what secularism Secularism is a worldview that is devoid of eternity, that doesn't count eternity. But we may ask, well, well why does that m- matter? Well, one of the things that I would say, because we might take a look at this and we might say, well, we know that the world at large is becoming more and more secular, right? But we live in the Bible belt, Right? The majority of the people that still live here, we're Christians, right? So we're, in, we're, we're, we're kind of in a protective bubble. No. The reality is, is there's really two big reasons. There's probably a lot more than that, but two big reasons why we should consider the default religion of our day, secularism. And the first one is, you might be more secular than you realize, Right? Just because we hold to Christianity doesn't mean that we are not ultimately and fundamentally secular, right? Because I say that secularism is a view of the world that's devoid of eternity, right? Well, a secularist can theoretically, can intellectually assent that God exists, can say that God is real. But if you practically live your life as though God is not real, if God if the idea and the belief of God doesn't impact how you live your life, then guess what? You're practically secular. <laughs> you are living your life in a, in a bubble of your own present time, not taking eternity into, into consideration, right? The, the technical term of what that would be is deism, right? The belief that, yes, there is a God, right? I can't deny that there's not a God, but he really doesn't have anything to say about how I live, right? Right? and so deism is secularism wearing a christian mask right putting on a mask of christianity and kind of using some of the language of christianity and the reality is is that even here in the bible belt that is all too common right indeed i know that there's many theologians that have said that the actual default religion even here in the bible belt is not christianity but instead we call it moralistic therapeutic deism right So it's not about the true ethics of the Bible is not how can I be good or what is good, but instead the true ethics of the Bible is what is God's will, right? What does God say for us to do? But a moralistic view discounts all of that, right? Doesn't come to God, but instead says, well, how can I be good? And because it's therapeutic, how can I be good in order to feel good about myself, right? And again, it's deistic because yes, I have to acknowledge that God exists, that there has to be a creator, but in reality, he doesn't really have anything to say about how I live my everyday life, right? I may go to church, right? I may pick up my Bible every once in a while, especially when times get really hard. But other than that, he doesn't really have anything to say. So secularism matters, one, because we might be more secular than we presently believe, right? But also, two, We consume secular media, (laughs) right? Whether it's from Hollywood or from any of the news outlets, right? They are thoroughly entrenched in a secular view, and the reality is, is that we don't live in a local bubble anymore. We live in a globalized economy, a globalized society, and so the messages that we are getting every single day onto all of our screens that saturate all of our lives is a secular message, right? And so would probably be pretty important for us to understand what that secularism is and why it's important and why it is contrary to Christianity. But maybe one of the most important questions that we can ask here is, as we root it to our text here, why does secularism have an appearance of godliness at all? If secularism is the view of the world in this present moment— not taking eternity into consideration, well then, why does secularism appear to be so godly? Why does it care about kindness and love and human rights at all, right? Before Christianity, no other major worldview has ever cared about those things, right? It was all about power and honor and glory, right? Those were the supreme virtues. It was Christianity that came in, with Jesus uprooting everything and saying, you know what? It's not the proud that will be exalted. It's the humble. You know what? It's not the first that will be first. It's the last that will be first. You're not going to become glorious by striving to achieve your own glory. You're going to become glorious by being the greatest servant, by presenting yourself as the lowest. So Christianity uprooted all of those virtues, all of those values. And the reality is, is that secularism couldn't have existed without Christianity. So the reason that secularism appears to be godly is because it's building upon a Christian foundation of the West. Christianity built the Western world as we know it, and secularism is continuing on that tradition and doing its best to chisel away all of those foundations as much as it can, right? To try to pretend that it didn't get anything from Christianity. But the reality is is that All of it does, right? We wouldn't care about black lives mattering if it wasn't for Christianity teaching us the Imago Dei. We wouldn't care about women's rights or human rights at all unless it was for Christianity. Christianity. We wouldn't even have science as we know it today unless we had a worldview that understood that there is a creator of the world, that he has spoken to us, that he is knowable and so therefore because he is knowable the world that he has created is also knowable science as we know it wouldn't exist without Christianity but like I said I've already kind of walked through some of those examples let's go through maybe two more new ones of how we see secularism today having an appearance of godliness but ultimately denying its power one is a rewriting of the beatitudes <laughs> so as we come to the lord's table we've been reading the, the beatitudes meditating confessing where we fall where we fall short of the beatitudes but those were radical as i said The world valued honor strength glory right but jesus comes in and he says "No, no no it's not the strong that are blessed it is the meek It's the poor in spirit. It's those who mourn. It's those who are merciful, right? So Jesus completely upended all of that. But nowadays, unmoored, untethered from our Christian heritage, from the Bible itself as a revelation of God's will for humanity, now what that is shaped into in a secular culture is blessed are the victims. Because it's taken a... Marxist view of, 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 of classes at war with each other Of oppressed and oppressors fighting against one another And it's taken it and put it into a cultural context Rather than an economic context And it is said that no we will give the power to those who are most oppressed well, That's not what Jesus did, right? Jesus didn't just come in and speak to the oppressed and say, hey, I'll give you power to oppress your oppressors. No, no, no. Right. Jesus overturned everything. Right. Jesus made it. Jesus brought us back to the Imago Dei. Right. To where We're all supposed to be striving after that communion with God and that love for one another. But the world doesn't know anything of that. And so at the end of the day, it Takes kind of an element of Christianity that last shall be first and the humble shall be exalted, but it twists it, it contorts it into making it to where, well, we want the oppressed to now have power over the oppressors, and that's where we get things like intersectionality, where, well, how do you figure out who the biggest oppressed the, the, the most oppressed are? Well, if are you are you white, are you male? Are you straight? Then you know, then you are the oppressor, right? But then if you meet other categories, if you are black and if you're trans and if you're female, right, then you're kind of the secular shaman of the secular religion, right? And that's only a little bit of a joke. Scientists are the shamans of the secular religion. Another example might be the criminal justice system where we, under a secular under a secular worldview that is completely divorced from God's holy word, from what God the creator has spoken to us, what we have presently working out in the West is an attempt to be more just than God. And an attempt to outdo God in terms of justice, right? And so you apply that whole blessed are the victims, right? Well, and who's more oppressed? Who is more a victim than all the criminals, right? Right? Then all of those who, through poor circumstances in life, and oh, it is, tra- it is tragic, how many of that how, how often that is the case, right? The poor circumstances in life, do indeed lead to that. But, but then, in an attempt to lovingly support criminals who we now view as victims, increasingly the actual victims of crimes, are not getting their justice met, right? And of course, we've seen that just this week, right? There was an incredible tragedy that happened in Nashville, right? And I feel absolutely terrible for the woman for how broken she must have been in order to get into a place where she shot up nine, uh, or three nine-year-old children, right? But if you... Notice our media has tried to spin that to where she is the actual victim of the shooting that she inflicted. When, if we actually look at the biblical system of justice, right, and we don't even just have to look at the Old Testament, right, Romans chapter 13 says that the secular government, right, the the, the civil government has been set up by God with the sword to enact justice, right? And so the reality is, is that if if a shooter survived a shooting, it would be just to bring them before a firing squad, right? The civil government would be completely in its rights, right? That would be a, a biblical thing to do. And in fact, it would probably be one of the most loving things to do to the shooter in order to actually make them consider their way of life and what led them down that path. And the list could go on, right? We could keep going with different ways of in which our world tries to outdo Christianity, tries to be more godly than God himself. But the reality is, is that because secularism dismisses God, right, dismisses the idea of God, at least in how he actually fits into our lives, it may have the appearance of godliness, but ultimately it denies the power. It denies God himself. And so, what are some consequences? Our Our world is thoroughly secular. We live in a post-Christian world, right? We are no longer a Christian nation. The West is no longer a Christian society. We are a post-Christian society. And I think some of the consequences of this is that ultimately secularism will fail. If I were a betting man, Hmm. and I don't think I can bet from the pulpit, right? (laughs) But I would say that it'll probably fail before before my generation passes away, right? And the reality is, and the, real, the reason for that is because secularism is undercutting its own foundation of Christianity, right? It is repeatedly chiseling away at all of those things and saying that it upholds human rights, but it's denying the very thing that gave it human rights to begin with, right? So you, you can't chisel away the rock underneath your feet and expect to stand for long. And so what will will happen, I think that there will always be secularists. I'm not saying that they'll go away entirely, right? I think that secularism will fade as a major religion, and in its place we have three options that will be rising to the surface, and that is paganism, Islam, or Christianity. And we see these things today. Paganism is making a comeback. People are hungering for something that has truths that go beyond just our lifetime for something that feels ancient, that feels eternal. And in many ways, they're going back to the paganism of the past. They're going back to the ancient way of worshiping all kinds of false gods, right? And our brother Tristan Clark up in Michigan has said that that is very much the case in Michigan where there's legit Norse pagan mythology that is coming back as an actual religion that people are believing in. But then also we see Islam on the rise, right? Islam, which is kind of a cross between paganism, but more so Islam, we should think of it as a Christian heresy, right? Islam, like Mormonism, like Jehovah's Witness, Islam is a Christian heresy, and so it presents the illusion of a foundation, but ultimately it too has denied the source, right? But Islam is currently presenting a A pretty solid alternative, right? It looks solid from all appearances to the squishiness of secularism. And of course we have Christianity, which I hope will win the day, right? I pray that it will, but the reality is is that secularism is on its way out. There's no people that have less kids than secularists, right? So they're not propagating themselves, and so it'll be paganism, Islam, or Christianity that ultimately wins the day and so that's enough of a diagnosis instead let's move on to the treatment right so we have before us a whole system a whole worldview a whole religion that's dominated our society that doesn't believe in God that has an appearance of godliness but denies its power that cannot stand that is faltering and will be replaced by paganism or Islam or Christianity and so what can we do (laughs) to hopefully present Christianity as that proper alternative, to present Christianity as the roots and the foundations of what made the West what it is. Well, I think we get the roots of it in the command that Paul gives us here. Avoid such people. Now, before I get to that, let me say this, and and I'll give this same statement both before and after all of these things that I'm about to say. I'm going to give us some practical things that I think that we can do, that I think that the Scripture, the New Testament as a whole calls us to do. But ultimately, we have to be rooted in the reality and the hope that Christ must build his church, right? Christ is the one that he will establish his church, his kingdom in the world, and ultimately, his kingdom won't come in its finality. The world will always be a broken, sinful place until his return to actually set up his kingdom in the flesh here on earth right so that's our hope the world will never be a great place right the world will never i don't believe that the world will ever be a truly christianized place right i think we can strive for those things but ultimately our hope has to be in christ but joe bernard he has this really great analogy and all analogies are broken and so don't follow it all too hard right but he has this great analogy where he talks about that the benefit of the spiritual discipline. So like, you know, reading the scriptures, prayer, being a part of corporate worship. Is that it's, it's kind of like a person that needs water and is going down to a stream in the middle of a drought, right? We can't bring the rain. We can't bring the water in ourselves. But we can go to the stream, go to the stream bed where we know that when it rains, that's where the water is going to go first, right? And so he says that's kind of what the spiritual disciplines are, right? We can't get God's grace to come to us through reading our Bibles and praying enough and being at and being gathered together as the church, right? Christ must move. Christ must be the one who enacts in us. If he wants us to to, to have a distinct feeling of his presence, he's the one that has to do all of that, right? But when we read our Bibles, when we pray, when we gather together, we're placing ourselves in the places where God does move right? In the things that God works through. And so in the same way that those are spiritual disciplines that we should practice personally, I'm going to present to us three things that I think that we should practice corporately, as a people, kind of cultural disciplines that I think that we should give ourselves to. And again, they're all rooted in this, avoid such people. Because I think that we can look at this and we may say, well, what does Paul mean by avoid such people? Does he mean that we need to be completely divorced from all of society? I don't think so. Paul lived in a pagan world, <laughs> right? And it would have been completely impractical. It would have been impossible for Paul, to com- for Paul and all the Christians to completely cut themselves off from the world at large. So I don't think that that's what he means when he says avoid such people. Now, we should make one little exception to this. Those who claim the name of Christ, Paul does have some really harsh words on, of avoid, of avoid those people completely. Don't even eat with such people, right? So if, if people claim the name of Christ, but, in, but, but live like the world, but deny him by their actions, live in unrepentant sin, then yes, that is the avoidance that we're thinking of, Right? But when it comes to the world at large, a world that has an appearance of godliness but denies its power, well, we, we, can't, we can't all be hermits and live alone, right? All by ourselves in our own little isolated communities. No, no, but instead we must be as Jesus taught us, in the world and not of the world. We must be a part of the culture but also a counter-cultural element. We must interact with all of the people around us but strive at every effort to show ourselves as different right this is why first peter calls us strangers and exiles right because we should live as though we are foreigners here on this earth right and being Married to a foreigner, I know what that's like, right? It's something that permeates everything that you do. You're in a foreign culture. Every single thing around you points out that you don't belong here. You still do your life there. You're a part of that culture. But by your very identity, you know that you are distinct from that culture. And you will never be fully and completely enmeshed and at home in that culture. And that is what we have to be. And that is what Paul is calling us to when he says avoid such people. And so I think we can do this, we can set ourselves apart as distinct from the secular world around us on three levels. The personal level, the household level, and then the corporate communal level. So the first, the personal level, that would be what Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, do not be conformed to the world, but instead be renewed in your minds, right? That, and I think this is the, this personal is the best place to begin because a lot of times, especially in our activist age, we want policies that we can put in place because that's easier, right? We want, we want to have programs and ministries that we can establish that get the work done for us, but the the best place to begin is with ourselves, right? There's the, there's the, um, the probably apocryphal story of G.K. Chesterton where there was newspapers that were asking people to write in and, t- and say and give their answers on what is wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton was said to have written in two simple words, I am, right? And so that's, that's where we should begin, right? <laughs> because we can't change the government. We can't, even, we can't even change our own city all that much, right? So what we can begin with is we can begin with us and we can begin by not being conformed to the world but being renewed by the spirit of God through his word constantly conforming ourselves to the image of Christ, right? And one of the chief ways that I think that this happens is through what we're intaking, right? We have the phrase, you are what you eat and it turns out we eat a lot more than just food, right? Our souls are nourished by the messages that we take in by the stories that we consume, right? By the media that we pus- that we put into our eyes. And what's interesting is that the where we get the word gospel from comes from this two old old English words, good spell, right? good spell. That's where we get the word gospel from. And the reason for that is because spell used to mean, in old English, message, the good message, the good news. But in reality, there's some there's some truth to messages kind of being spells, kind of being like magic worked on us, right? Because just the same way that food nourishes our body, messages and stories, they shape us either for the for better or for worse, right? Either for good or for ill. They kind of work like spells upon us. And so what are we putting in? Are we putting in those secular messages? Are we putting in all of the spells of the world, all of the messages of the world, all of the all of the soul food that the world presents to us or are we intaking the good spell? The good message Are we in taking scripture and are we in taking things that are saturated in the scripture, right? Probably the greatest example of living this way, I think, would be Daniel, right? Who as a young man was taken into Babylon, worked as an official in the Babylonian palace, right? At one point ascended to be one of the supreme officials of the Babylonian empire. And yet Daniel constantly kept his Jewish identity. He constantly kept praying towards Jerusalem. Even as he lived most of his entire life in Babylon, he never stopped looking at Jerusalem. He never never failed to remember that he was a foreigner, right? And so, are we doing that? Or, does all of our intake look exactly like the the non-Christians around us? So I think that's personally where we should begin. The second, we can also look at households as a whole. Principle of war, (laughs) principles of war would probably tell us that the place where the enemy is attacking the most is probably the place that needs to be guarded the most, right? And what do we see being constantly attacked today? The family, right? And I think that there's kind of a pretty big reason for this, because if secularism is, 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 is a worldview that is devoid of God, that ignores, that, that, that doesn't consider God as being practical, then what is the highest authority that we can have? Well, it's the civil state, right? And so secularism doesn't always, but very often leads to another ism, and that is state-ism, right? The turning to the civil government as the highest authority in the land, right? And governments, in wanting to get more and more power, have a vested interest in not having really strong families, right? They have a vested interest in disrupting family units, which in many ways vie for authority with the civil government, right? And so that's exactly what we see with Um, with President Johnson and his great society in, in, in very much incentivizing fatherless homes, mothers that work outside of the household, and children that are educated by the state. It's part of the plan, right? It's part of the structure for disrupting the family and making it to where we turn to that highest authority in the land. Not God, we don't We don't really count God. He's not an authority that plays in our lives, but the government. Let's rely on him. Let's rely on it, right? But the reality is, is that God has told us that after personal belief, the second most important realm of our lives is our family, right? And we see that pattern in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, right? Which is the cornerstone foundation of the Old Testament, where we... First, we see the confession, the cornerstone confession of the Old Testament, which is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then we have the greatest commandment, right? Which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So those are personal. And then what's the next thing? Familial, you shall teach them diligently to your children. So after personal belief comes familial instruction, comes passing that down. That's God's pattern, right? Brothers and sisters, as much as I love small groups and I love what we do here at the church and community groups and the super CG on Wednesday night was an excellent thing, right? Our hope in multiplication is not going to be primarily through those kinds of small groups, but instead through the familial groups that God himself has given to us, which have a deadline on multiplication, (laughs) where children actually will physically leave the house and go form their own family units, right? Now, that's a multi-generational vision, but I think it's the biblical vision. But we may say, well, but what about singles? Not every one of us is in a family, right? Some There's some people that are single, and I think that in the same way, there needs to be a recapturing of Paul's vision for single-minded singleness, which is what we see in 1 Corinthians where Paul says famously, right, I wish that all would be as I am, not married, not having kids, right? But why? So that we can do the secular pattern of whatever we want, party every night, No, 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 so that we can give ourselves wholeheartedly to the kingdom of God, to the church, to our brothers and sisters, to making disciples, right? And so in the same way that we need to strengthen families, that we need to devote ourselves to diligently teaching our children all of the commands that God has given to us, singles can provide a similar witness to the world by devoting themselves to the household of God, to the overall household. Of God. That's Paul's vision for singleness, single minded singleness. But then finally, so we have personal non conformity to the world. Second, we have the household structure of discipleship and teaching. But then third, we also have the communal witness, our collective witness. And we do that every single morning here, physically, coming together on the Lord's day. And that is becoming increasingly important today because, as George said a couple of weeks ago, and I think this was a, a great insight, the devil only has so many heresies. He only has so many false teachings, right? But every generation, he just kind of puts new costumes on them, right? And so, Gnosticism was one of the first heresies that the Christian church dealt with, and it there's a lot of things to Gnosticism, but one of the main things that they believed was physical the physical world was bad, the spiritual world was good, right? When today, we may say, well, how does secularism have a rebirth of Gnosticism if it doesn't believe in the spiritual world? Well, today we have kind of a digital Gnosticism that is making its way in the world, right? We're in place of, a, in, in, in place of saying, well, spiritual is good and physical is bad. Now we have this kind of movement of, well, it'll be technology that saves us. It'll be the digital world that, that helps us to live on once we're dead, right? We'll create algorithms that, lets us, that, lets, that, that that takes all of our social media accounts and lets our loved ones still talk to us after we're dead, which is a, a real thing. They're placing their hope in the digital world rather than in the spiritual world, right? But the reality is, is that that's not the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is not physical bad, spiritual good, Biblical worldview is that we are both physical and spiritual beings and one of the the physical world is broken it's marred sinful the whole creation is groaning for its redemption right but guess what Christ purchased that redemption through a physical body by actually coming down and being born a human going through all that messy birth process Growing up as a real flesh and blood human and then actually spilling his blood to save us. Really dying, right? It's not just a story. (laughs) It's the, the true story, the capital S story, right? And every day when we physically come together, we're testifying against the world's oncoming digital Gnosticism that the physical does matter. It is good to be together, right? And again, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that digital is bad, right? We have a we have a live stream going and that's good, right? Because there, there are certain cases in which we can't be together physically, right? But ultimately we should be testifying that, but this is the ideal. <laughs> This is what God wants us to do, right? This is this is what we're hoping that we will be able to do, right? And we can use technology in good benefits, but we come together physically as a as a declaration every single week that the body does matter. That Christ had a body, that he redeemed us through his body, and that one day when our bodies are placed in the ground and they decay and pass away, one day Christ will return to give us new bodies, new physical bodies, bodies that where we can see, taste, and touch, and smell, bodies that live for an eternity upon a new earth that has been redeemed. And so again, I said I would come back to this. <laughs> so I think we should practice all three of those things, right? We should have a personal nonconformity to the world, not being out of the world, we can't get out of the world, but a personal nonconformity, striving to live as a foreigner in the world. We should devote ourselves to household discipleship, right? The pattern that God has given us to, or single-minded singleness, if that's where, we ha- where the Lord has us in life. And then also our, our corporate physical presence in a world that wants to deny everything that that has to do. But ultimately, again, those are practices that we should do. Practices that if we do practice them, then the Lord is most likely to use those as instruments for His building the kingdom here on earth. But ultimately, ultimately, our hope is not in this present earth at all, right? Our hope is in His coming. I hope that the West can be saved. I I hope that our country can be saved. I hope that Christianity will make a comeback. But that's not our blessed hope. The United States can fade away. The West can fade away. But ultimately, our hope has to come from Christ's return. One day he will come back and he'll make all things new, right? And that's the beauty of when we come to this table, which again, isn't it great that Christianity, for all of its intellectual qualities, right? And I'm I'm very much aware that this Sermon probably feels more like a lecture than just about any sermon that I've preached, right? But despite all of the intellectual properties of Christianity, the Lord calls us to this ritual, right? To coming to a table and eating a physical piece of bread and taking a physical sip from the cup and calling that the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? That for all of the, not, of the intellectual properties of Christianity, at the end of the day, the Lord calls us to something that is embodied, something that is physical, to something that we can taste and touch. And so I think as we come to the table this morning, with that in mind, I want us to hear and remember the words that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, where Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice that. We're doing a physical action presently. We're we're going to eat a piece of bread. We're going to take a sip of a cup. But as we do that, we acknowledge that we are presently rooted in two poles. We're rooted in a past event, and we're looking forward to a future event, right? Right? We're rooting ourselves and we're proclaiming what Christ has done through his death. That the only hope of the world is not in the, politics, the politicians that we elect. That the hope of the world is not in how well we can obey the scriptures. But that the hope of the world comes through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Where he has made atonement for the sins of the world. So that we can now go into the world and say, come and be cleansed. Come and be free. Come and lay your sins upon him and be forgiven. We're rooted in that past event once for all, the death of Christ to the, for the purification of our sins. But it is until he comes. It is looking forward to that day because that is the blessed hope that we have. That Christ will return for his bride. That Christ will make all things new. That he will the creation that is groaning for the redemption of God's people, one day we'll see them. We'll see the bride of Christ in all of her glory standing beside her husband and all of creation. We will say with the Bible, behold, all things are new and God will come down and he will dwell with his people and we will be his people and he will be our God and he will dry every tear. So brothers and sisters, may we may that strengthen us. May we live in that hope, may, it have, may, we have, may we have courage to live in the present, but may our hope always be in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to make all things new. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give thanks to you for Christ, we give thanks to you for the good news of the gospel, for that message of hope that the world so desperately needs. Father, we pray for the world around us, we pray that as secularism crumbles and gives way, that people will not go back to the to the old paganism of old, that they will not succumb to the lies of Islam, but instead that they will behold Jesus Christ and him crucified. But Father, we know that ultimately, we know that that the devil has been cast to earth and he knows that his time is short. And so Father, we know that we don't ultimately wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers and rulers over this present darkness. And so Father, Root us this morning in the death of Christ to cover all of our sins, to know that he has once for all triumphed over the powers of darkness, and give us courage today as we come to this table looking forward to the day when Christ comes to you.